are back for what I think is probably one of the biggest episodes of Behind the Lens that we've had so far this year. Uh, it's already the middle of September. Hard to believe. For all of our listeners of the Jewish faith out there, let us say Happy New Year to you. And thank you all for tuning in. I am Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. You can find my movie reviews and interviews on my website on Examiner, in the Culver City Observer, British Weekly, Santa Monica Observer, Beacon, Ta- Beacon Times Chains, Columbus Register. I'm all over the globe. So look for me, but listen here live every Monday, 11 to 12, here on Adrenaline Radio. Um, for those of you that don't know, the show rebroadcasts throughout the week. It's also available on iTunes later, uh, probably tonight. And uh, we've got a video pack that is up later on in the week whenever Jordan has a computer that works and he gets around to editing the show. But I'm here by my, and he's sitting back there laughing. Normally, I have one of my cinematic cohorts here. Greg is off being a very dutiful son. Uh, So I am left to my own devices today, for which I apologize in advance. But we do have a great show, an absolutely jam-packed show. Uh, And as I said, this is a a show of champions today. Uh, At 11.15, we've got filmmaker Kelly McClung, who's going to... for those of you that don't know, Kelly is actually, the, he at one time held the middleweight championship for the International Full Contact Stick Fighting and Martial Arts uh, competition. He is now an accomplished filmmaker. Uh, we're going to talk about his film, Altered. I like to call it Groundhog Day meets Deliver Us from Evil meets Existentialism, and it boasts some incredible cinematography but from Emoto Harney. Uh, I have to give Emoto a huge shout out because it is a stunningly beautiful film. Altered will be at the Action on Film Fest this coming weekend uh, for its world premiere. And it's already up for uh, eight different awards, including Best Picture, Best Horror Film, Best Director. And we'll get into all of that with Kelly. At 1130, the man, DDP himself, Diamond Dallas Page, joins us at 1130 to talk about the resurrection of Jake the Snake, which is opening in Atlanta uh, this Friday on the 18th. Then they're doing a Q&A. I think uh, that Dallas and Jake are going to be participating in that and possibly director of the documentary, Steve Yu. So we'll hear all everything, everything about Resurrection of Jake the Snake and one of the key ingredients to not only that documentary, but to Jake Roberts coming back. And uh, being in the prime of his life with great health, great fitness. And that's due to uh, Dallas's DDP yoga. So we're going to talk to him about that. And as you know, Dallas is a champion. I mean, three-time WCW, two or three-time U.S. WCW champ. So another champion here. And then at 11.45, we've got... uh, National College Emmy winner, Alan uh, Lubke, who's going to be talking to us about his documentary about Glenna Avia. And for those of you who know wrestling, MMA, martial arts, you know Glenna. She is the woman's MMA champ. And this is her story uh, during the course of the year where she was being a mother, a mother to two, to two children, uh, with a house, with a job, and had to make the decision, do you go from amateur to pro and all the hardships and obstacles that she faced? So, 
lots of champions today. We're going to be talking to them all. But before we get to that, as you watch the video this week, you'll see that we have more inside out accoutrement adorning the, the set this week. Well, that's because inside out as of this weekend became the third highest grossing domestic uh, film of 2015, surpassing Fast and Furious 7. Uh, Avengers Age of Ultron is still at number two with $458 million, but Jurassic World is past, spanning the epochs, uh, and it is still the number one highest grossing film of the year with $648.9 million. So that's, uh, that's going to be really, to see how this plays out, especially since Inside Out is back in theaters again. Uh, domestic grosses do matter, people. It isn't just about international gross. It's also about domestic gross. But before uh, Kelly calls in and we get started with our live interviews today, I want to talk about a film that, quite honestly, it is, it's masterful. Time Out of Mind, written and directed by Oren Moverman, stars Richard Gere. Uh, the film boils down to two primary components that make this film as spectacular as it is and that is Richard Gere's introverted and introspective performance and the cinematography of Bobby Bukowski. Uh, for those of you who, don't, who aren't familiar with Bobby Bukowski's work, I think he has seven or eight films this year alone. He's worked with some of the best. He's worked with Mark Pellington. I think he even did I Melt With You, one of Mark's visual masterpieces. Um, but here he is teaming up for the third time with Oren, and the two of them have a magic that is undeniable in formulating and in crafting film. Um, this is basically the story of a gentleman named George Hammond. He's lost to society. He's lost to himself. He's become homeless on the streets of New York. He is barely functioning. He is essentially invisible. And there's minimal dialogue. It boils down to gear, and it boils down to the cinematography and the construct that Oren and Bobby developed to tell this story and relies on the visuals, shooting through multiple layers of windows, blurring out imagery, blurring out a face so that Richard's character, George, is barely, you can't see him. He just melts into the background, into the cacophony of the city, uh, the buildings, archways, doorways. It is stunning. It is masterful. Uh, gear, I would not be surprised. It, probably a dark horse at this moment, but I fully anticipate he is going to be a hot contender uh, and be right up there when it comes time for Oscar nomination, consideration, Golden Globes. This is the best performance of his career. And quite honestly... I would be pushing Bobby Bukowski for an Oscar nod for cinematography. It's that beautiful. But I had a chance to talk to Oren uh, about the film. And uh, we've talked about it on multiple occasions, but we actually did a, a quote-unquote for us, semi-formal interview. We've known each other a number of years. Um, I'm a huge champion and advocate of his work, uh, of his heart, and... Uh, with this film, I think he outdoes even himself. 
Now, the, the story for Time Out of Mind actually came from a British writer, Jeffrey Kane, who you may know best for The Constant Gardener. Um, wrote the script maybe 20 years ago and kind of fell through the, through the cracks. But I asked Oren about how this ended up, how does it go from Jeffrey Kane 20 years ago into his hands? And here's what Oren had to say. By the time the script got to me, it was, it was already an old script. It was almost 20 years old. It didn't really work for what we were trying to do. So, you know, we took the core of it, and that's why, you know, Jeffrey has a story credit on, on the movie, which was the story of a homeless man named George who has a daughter. In the original, she was a law school uh, student. Um, but here, I sort of had a different take on her. Uh, and who has nowhere else to go, estranged from his daughter, he ends up in a shelter system um, for whatever reason and goes through the process of um, recognizing the fact that he's homeless and that um, he may need to do something about it. Uh, and then um, part of it was also a friendship that he struck with this uh, African-American man named Dixie in the original, Dixon in this one. Um, and so we took that kind of triangle, that relationship mm -hmm. angle, uh, and created uh, a brand new scenario for around it. Um, and this is something that Richard proposed to me at a party, very casually, saying that he wanted, he's been obsessed with this homeless man character and he would like to play with him. And whenever an actor of that stature especially tells me, I want to play a character no one would ever think of me to play, I listen. There's something interesting going on. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad Oren was at that party with Richard because it, it, this truly is a tour de force by Richard Gere um, and also by Oren. And Oren, we're seeing a lot of Oren's work this year. Earlier this year, we saw Love and Mercy. He wrote the screenplay for that, the incredible story, uh, Brian Wilson's story, with Brian played uh, by John Cusack and Paul Dano. Uh, again, extremely moving, extremely powerful. Love and Mercy is current. I think it is now on DVD. It has been on VOD. Time Out of Mind actually hits VOD tomorrow. So if you can't see it in the theater, it's worth the $6.99 or whatever, Time Warner Cable, Comcast, or whomever, whatever they're going to charge you, you will be blown away. But as I mentioned, this boils down to Richard's performance and Bobby Bukowski's cinematography, which... Bobby and Oren together, I don't know where one begins and one ends when they start laying out a visual palette and a plan for a film. Uh, you saw this uh, with The Messenger that starred Woody Harrelson. You saw this in Rampart, again, teaming up with Woody. Um, each film is different, eclectic, visually different, and each one is powerful as the other. So I had to ask Oren about the visuals and Richard's performance. And here's what he had to say. I mean, I have to say, and I know I mentioned this before to Bobby and to you, this film boils down to it's your visuals and Richard's introverted performance. Yep. That, that's, it is that's that. That's the key to it that I think a lot of people don't understand. It's an unbelievable introverted performance because here's a guy who not only on the level of a character is playing something from the inside, but he's also in situations where, as an actor, where there's no camera around. 
he can't he can't perform for a camera. He just has to be alive and present mm-hmm. moment, and that creates such an internal performance. And to find external ways of showing it is is so difficult and so challenging. And he was able to do it every time. It's just really amazing to watch just from a spectator, spectator's perspective for me. Now, how did you, because I know we had talked about the way that you and Bobby designed the visuals, because we start out in the film where he's totally lost. Richard, you know, as George, he's totally lost. He's hidden. He's invisible. And you're lensing through layers of windows, mirrors, um, you know, really isolating him from the world so we feel that and we see it. How did you and Bobby approach developing this visual bandwidth and timeline? Because as the film progresses and as he has and as George has more interaction with humanity, with people, a lot of those layers get stripped away and the can more color becomes infused. Um, this is a very methodical thought process for what you guys designed. Yeah, absolutely. And and once again, you're one of the few people who saw that. Uh, <laughs> um, there, there's definitely a design to, to the visuals. We started with the photographs of Soul Lighter um, and that kind of approach, which is uh, layered, kind of textured, um, chaotic, uh, but observational, so that some of his photographs, when you see them from the late 40s, for example, or the 50s, some photos you don't really know what they're about. You don't know what the subject of the photograph is because it's it's just showing you a slice of life with all its fragments and elements. And Bobby and I, and I'm, I'm sure Bobby will talk about it uh, his own way, the way we approach these movies is we always create a visual arc. We want the movement, even if there's not a lot of drama and, and, and Time of the Mind has drama, but it's little dramas. It's not like one big kind of like uh, dramaturgy that's controlling that's controlling um, the um, the narrative. Um, we we still plot out a drama in the in the arc of the the visuals, and so our idea was: here's a story about a man who most of us, including myself, would not really notice on the street as we go through our busy lives. Uh, and so we wanted to create uh, the perspective for the movie would be the perspective of the city, perspective of people living in the city, rushing around, uh, living their lives. And so a man like this, you know, you have to make an effort to see him, uh, to really see him, to really pay attention to what's going on with him. And so we gave the perspective of, of the city, which means you'll see him through windows, you'll see him door frames, you'll see him from rooftops, you'll see him through shop uh, windows, you'll see him with bicycles going by, Uh, all these things that are getting in the way of you engaging with this person for whatever reason, but also kind of holding you back from engaging um, on a compassionate level. It's, It's hard to feel compassion for people you don't really know anything about or, um, you know, kind of engage with their stories. And so as we get deeper and deeper into the story, as you say, uh, these obstructions start melting away uh, to the point that by the end of it, the movie is really quiet. Uh, There's nothing in between him and the other characters he's interfering with, specifically his daughter in the last scene. And by the time he's out the door and back into the city, even the street is empty. The cars, we took away the cars, we took away anything that would just be a, a distraction. And by the way, the only moving shot in the entire movie is the last shot of the movie, uh, and that's because the movement actually creates 
a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not observational anymore. It's just a camera is now in a place where it, it's going to tell you what hopefully could lead you out of this movie into a, a slightly somewhat optimistic place where maybe things are going to be okay. So all that stuff is, is completely thought out. As you, as you know, you know me and Bobby, you know that we're like, we're very meticulous about our looseness. And so we... We try to create an arc that makes sense for us in terms of the camera work, and then a lot of stuff happens because we're, we're very kind of rigid about the plan. But mm-hmm. the visual world kind of comes alive because we let it come alive in this in this philosophy of just kind of training a camera on a, a, a street corner but being very far away and letting the city live around the character. So, directors, take note. You can listen to all of these tips and all of these thought processes of Oren you know, on the rebroadcast. But right now, it is my friend, the wonderful Kelly McClung. Hello, Kelly. Are you there? I'm here, yeah. All right. Well, hello, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm fine. So you're following Oren Moverman. You're preceding Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah, cool. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) So, altered. Talk about for some reason I'm having I'm having I'm really straining to hear you for some reason. Really? Yeah, I barely can. You can barely hear me of all people? I you know, I'm surprised about <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll talk extra loud since I don't know where my sound engineer has disappeared from the booth. I don't know if there's something he could have done to fix yeah, it. Yeah, not a problem, not a problem. But I'll just enunciate and talk louder. So welcome, welcome, and this yeah. is a, this is a big week for you. Altered is finally going to have its premiere. Yeah, you know it's like a lot of people. It um, especially in the independent world, it takes a lot longer than you would think to make a movie. <laughs> and um, you know it's hard to believe, but I actually originally came up with this idea wow more than ten years ago, and then the actual production started five years ago and post-production has dragged on for three or four years and um but yeah we had a look couple test screenings and things went really really well and made you know some slight adjustments but um we have our world premiere um officially at the action on film festival this uh coming saturday actually out in monrovia california at the krikorian um, theater yeah yeah it's a nice little town and they do a good job and Dell takes over. Um, Dell Weston, the director of the festival, and and they've put us in a position to be, you know, one of their primary movies, I guess, or one of their showcased films. We're up for a few awards. Uh, and, eight, um, eight. I counted one, two, three. Yeah, four. nine actually. So that's pretty cool. Wait a minute. And, which um, one am I missing? Editing, cinematography, uh, special effects, effects, best director, best picture, best horror film, best artwork. <laughs> I don't know, there's something in there. And we've already won a few years ago. We actually entered the screenplay and actually had already won this feature film as a screenplay. Now, describe Altered. At the top of the show, I, you know, to me, if I had to describe it briefly, it would be Groundhog Day meets Deliver Us from Evil meets Existentialism. Also- <laughs> yeah, you know, I that's, you know, Groundhog Day, that's the, um, I had a, film critic in England, who's a pretty big-time genre critic, and he actually mentioned Groundhog Day. He said, hey, this is Groundhog Day with a predetermined unhappy ending. (laughs) I 
Well, and, um, I don't see it as an unhappy ending, though. You know, I don't either. I mean, it's 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 kind of a reflection on the idea that um, you know we have this ongoing battle of good and evil. Those exist no matter what. So the concept behind the movie, you know, we were reaching for some really big themes, and actually several big themes. And one of those was the idea that the world is literally created from your own perceptions. And as your perceptions change, you know, your experience of the world changes as well. But the essence of good and evil um, on an elemental level, those never change. It doesn't matter how you look at them. Evil is evil and good is good. And we tried to explore some different ideas and we tried to set it up in a an orthodox structure that made the audience more or less participate and experience the film and go through some changes, just as our lead character was as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course, your lead character, played by Amanda Dreschler. Um, Amanda's amazing. Yeah, you know, we really put her through it. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, you know, she's stunning, she's beautiful, She's very, very talented. Um, I'd worked with her once before on another project. And then, you know, we basically torture her physically and <laughs> mentally the entire film. She really has to, um, you know, we really put her through hell. <laughs> but one one thing that is not torture is the beautiful visuals that you and Emoto have created. The, the combination of Molly Coffee's production design, your art, the artwork, uh, the vibrancy, the saturation, and what you and Emoto designed uh, in terms of lighting and lensing is just mind-blowing. It is beautiful, and I find that dichotomous metaphor, uh, you know, setting it against the evil and the horror that's unfolding, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to watch unfold. No, I really appreciate it. I mean, I spent a lot of time with Emoto um, you know, my formula is rust, dust, and dirt. If you have enough money, you can light and film glass and chrome and beautiful fabrics and and, and high-tech. You know, I mean, you can create beautiful looks. But without a lot of money and with minimal light and the way digital cameras work, you know, my emphasis is on texture and a, a depth and a richness. So part of it happens in the... The um, searching of the locations, part of it happened in, um, you know, just the incredibly rich backdrop that Chicago gives us. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's just an amazing city, so photogenic. And usually I've seen movies set in Chicago, and, and what happens is they, they end up with a few postcard-type, you know, establishing shots, and then you're in an t- interior or wherever, and you could be anywhere. And I was really insistent that in my mind and, and for myself that if you are watching this film, you know, you experience as if you were thrown in Chicago and people are surprised at how loud it is or how dirty it is. But, you know, this is a huge international northern city. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I love that you capture the grit, the grit of the city in here, but then with the saturation, with punctuation of color, that's where you really see the texture and the, and the hidden beauty. Well, again, back to perception, you know, the, the idea that some of these things you would never pay attention to, you know, a, a mud puddle, you know, uh, a dirty, nasty alley that you yourself would never walk down. But 
a lot of it's done in camera. A lot of it is done in heavy, heavy post work that I do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, I add shadows. I add smoke. I add color. I add, you know, I, I do a lot. But, you know, the big films do much the same work. And, um, and that's, as a filmmaker, that's part of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to compete with other independent films or anything else. I'm, I'm competing for people's times and energy. And, and, you know, my, my competition is Ridley Scott or, or whoever. Because again, you're just asking people to give you a couple hours of their time. And I really wanted to make something that sticks with you. Um, so, you know, we really, it's taken me three solid years of post-production work to make it look like this, but, um, yeah, I'm really proud of it and proud of all the work that people did in it. They, um, it's not a normal movie. <laughs> it's not like a lot. It is not mainstream. a lot of people are expecting. Yeah, it is not mainstream. It really is not. Not even mainstream horror. No, I don't even think of it really mm. as horror. I think... I think as a horror film, we need to be more bloody, more gory, more whatever. But, and it's not really particularly scary, but it is very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because it's touching on subjects that, you know, sometimes we don't want to face some of those subjects. Back to, you know, good and evil, and it obviously has a religious bent to it, and um, that makes people very uncomfortable and... Um, well, I found that it really goes into the recesses of your mind and it causes you, when you're watching it, to do some self-reflection, some introspection as as the visuals, as the story is unfolding. And that frightens, that frightens a lot of people. It does, and it makes people kind of uncomfortable. It, it, um, you know, it's not a happy movie, but at the same time, you know, for me as a filmmaker, I mean, I'm not famous, I haven't done anything huge or whatever, but, but for me, my goal is uh, is to make something that, you know, can kind of stick with you, which kind of makes you think, which makes you makes you question and and consider the movie long after it's over. You know, for, for me, the worst possible thing would be somebody watches the film and they go, hey, that was great, um, <laughs> what do you want to eat? I would be like, oh, I failed. Or if they walk out saying, now, wait a minute, I don't get it. I, wait, 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 i got to see it again. Then that, to me, is uh, some sign of success that I've accomplished and, you know, my cast and crew and what we set out to do accomplished much of what we did, you know. Now, you're wearing so many hats in this film. Writer, director, <laughs> editing, <laughs> producing, and, of course, you're acting in it as well. Yeah, you know, I, I go, I agonize too over the acting as well. I mean, I cast other people, or I, or I at least read a lot of other people to play my role. And, and at the end of it, I, I really have to consider and say, hey, am I the right guy for the job? And this particular film is, um, as you know, the acting in this it catches people by surprise. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm at least the third lead, if not the second lead of the film. And I have zero lines for the entire movie. I have no dialogue. And um, I thought that would, you know, it was a challenge. <laughs> you know. So how, how do you then know which hat to pull on and off? You know, how do you seamlessly go between writer, director, 
actor, because an editor, because I'm sure that as a director and editor, while you're shooting, you're also thinking ahead of the game as to what you could be doing in post in terms of of cutting and slicing. You know, not so much the editing and slicing. I mean, you try to, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you've seen the film, so, you know, there's just a multitude of angles and shots and fast editing and cutting and and I I find myself if I if I shoot a hundred shots I'm not somebody who says hey let me just shoot a hundred shots and maybe we'll use we'll use what we do hey we thought of that if I've shot a hundred shots somehow ninety seven of them make it into that the final shot I wow. mean the final cut list you know but one of the things that does help quite a bit when we're we're looking at the frame and the composition is knowing how I can further manipulate the picture. You know, if you if you just went by what you see in camera, you know, and working with Emoto for a lot of testing ahead of time and getting her on the same page to understand that this is what you see, but this is what it's going to turn into. And and by the end and through other stuff that I was able to show her, she um you know, she just trusted me. Hey, this doesn't look that great in camera, but I know what it's going to turn into <laughs> because, you know, I've showed her before. So in that respect, but, you know, as an editor, you've got to kind of look at things differently. Mm-hmm. You know, as a writer, you, you create a story, and that's kind of your wish list. And then as a director, just the the things that come up on set and the fluidity of filming and production, you know, you don't get exactly what you want all the time but if you're open for it you get things that you never dreamed of so then now as the editor you've got to say okay this is what we tried to do that's all great but this is what we have Mm -hmm. so here's the pieces now what is the puzzle what is the picture we're going to make from these puzzle pieces Mm -hmm. now kelly with a film like altered how much fluidity is there with your working script because it is such a visual piece do you do you adhere to that working script, or is there room for ad-libbing changing on the day of? You know, it's not, it's moment by moment sometimes. Um, that, you know, again, if you're Spielberg and you want rain, and it's scheduled to have rain at 3 <laughs> o'clock, you're going to have rain at 3 o'clock. Um, but in my case, it's like, in fact, it's this movie, because of the fact that you know, we had a smaller, smaller budget and it stretched on. I mean, there's movies, there's shots that have snow in them. Well, those were shot in July. There's other shots that have people's breath, and those were shot in July. Then there's shots where, you know, the shot where I'm laying in the puddles and we're running around without our shirt on and the girls laying in bed naked. It was 29 degrees outside. Oh, my God. That was a long night for that girl. Uh, okay, so what what was the insurance budget on here for health care and for workers' comp? Well, <laughs> this has been the movie. <laughs> Me saying, hey, you know, we're, we're going to get some hot chocolate when we're done. You'll be healthy. <laughs> and, and, and you also see, I mean, I do ask a lot of my actors and the cast and crew, but I think where... I get away with a lot of stuff, and I think you might be able to tell, is I always put more demands on myself. And the the cast and crew know as much as they're going through, I'm going through 
much, much more. And um, and because of that, I think there's just a, a respect and a, a willingness to say, hey, you know, if the leader of the band's going to do it, we will too. Mm. Well, my friend, I can't thank you enough. Everybody needs to go to Action on Film, Krikorian Theater on Myrtle Avenue in Monrovia, September 19th at 10 p.m. Nobody will be disappointed when they see this film. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and you, um, I will see over this weekend as well. Yeah, we will. It's going to be fun. I can't wait. We're going to have a lot of fun. And right now... I'm going to say goodbye to you and say hello to Diamond Dallas Page. Perfect, perfect. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Debbie. Bye. Bye. And is this the phenomenal Diamond Dallas Page joining behind the lens? How are you, Deb? I'm fine, <laughs> Dallas. How are you doing? Well, unstoppable. We have a crazy uh, amount of things going on right now here uh, in Smyrna, Georgia, which is one of the suburbs of... Uh, of Atlanta, it's where um, Julia Roberts was born. Uh, it's really beautiful little, beautiful little town that we have here, and uh, we're opening up the DDP Yoga Performance Center this week. So between the opening, grand opening of DDP Yoga Performance Center, and the resurrection of Jake the Snake, uh, debuting here in uh, Atlanta, it's uh, pretty crazy busy. Oh my God! I mean, and I love Georgia. I my mother's family is from there. My aunt lives in Southern Georgia in Omaha. My cousin lives outside of Atlanta near you, so I I just I love love Georgia and I love that whole region that you're in. And I'm so excited that the landmark in Atlanta, that Midtown Art Cinema, is going to be showing Jake the Snake this Friday. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, we're actually they got they gave us a whole week. Uh, to show it, and then on the 21st and the 22nd, myself, uh, Jake the Steak Roberts, and Razor Ramon, a.k.a. Scott Hall, will all be at the uh, at the uh, landmark and doing uh, a Q&A afterwards, and then like we always do, we stick around then, because people, they want to do a meet and greet and, you know, get by t-shirts and the posters and pictures and stuff, so we stay around there until everybody leaves, and so it's uh, everybody thinks they're pretty happy. Well, and that's that's something that a lot of people don't, un, people who aren't familiar with the wrestling world, that they don't understand. I mean, my experience with wrestling goes back to the 60s with the guys like Bruno San Martino and Gorilla Monsoon, long before it became a really viable, tough, disciplined, and commercialized sport. But you guys are so dedicated to your fans and, and I think that's one of the great things about what you have now done with DDP Yoga and that people can actually see through Resurrection of Jake the Snake is you care about people. You care about your fans. You care about each other. And it's all about helping each other, supporting each other, and, you know, making everybody the best they can be. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, and the, the movie itself, have you gotten a chance to actually see it yet? I've seen it five times. <laughs> I, oh, I kid you awesome. not I saw it earlier this year um, before the Arclight, the Arclight Slamdance Cinema Club screening I've seen it multiple times since I watched it again uh, because of the theatrical release now and I knew you were coming on the show and I wanted to see it again plus every time I see it I it, it invigorates me awesome 
that, that, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, we got, uh, um, James, uh, Josh Brolin actually had screened it recently because we're wanting him to come to when we're in Culver City at the, uh, at the Arclight. Um, uh, we want, you know, of course, we would love to have the great Josh Brolin, the actor, um, you know, to uh, do our Q&A for us. Uh, last time we had uh, Joe Magliano. You could have Joey. me. You could have me in Culver City. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely put you on the list. Uh, but uh, when Brolin um, watched it, he, he wrote back to... Um, he wrote back to uh, Chris, our, our one of our executive producers, who had, had sent the movie to him. And I won't get into all the details because it put me over a little too much, and I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that. But he did say a great story of hope and love and real compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty cool coming out of coming out of him, you know. Well, and you know, and that's something. This the film would not have taken would not be here now were it not for you. I think that's a very fair thing to say because you were the one that got Jake back on the path, the path to recovery, the path the path to positivity, and you did it through the, your DDP program. Right. And now let me ask you. And this is this is really interesting because. You know, I, I only I say it one time. I say DDP yoga one time because I'm doing something in the WWE in the back locker room with my buddies uh, uh, Booker T and uh, and um, uh, Ron Ron Simmons, and uh, that's the only time I ever mentioned DDP yoga. And you see, it's working out from time to time. But a lot of the reviews that we got said, you know, we saw this could have been an infomercial. But it's not. And they would make it a point of telling people that this is a story, it really just what, what Brolin said, of, you know, people who, you know, buddies who love each other and mm-hmm. try to help each other out. Jake Roberts helped me so much out in my career. I always have to say, because I never forget anybody who helped me, without Dusty Rhodes, the late, great Dusty Rhodes, oh. he just passed uh couple months back he was my first mentor without him i i never you know have anything in professional wrestling but without jake the snake roberts i never hit that main event status i'm never a three-time world champion um jake gave me a lot of knowledge and, and i wanted to help him out and that's how the movie starts mm-hmm. i just wanted to help my buddy out for helping me and uh you know it uh if if I knew how hard it was going to be, <laughs> you know, if I knew what I was getting into, you know, I don't, you know, I know now because because if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? Right. You know what I mean? Like now I know I know I I, I know that I couldn't fail in this because I've seen it, but there's so many times in the making of this movie, me and the director Steve, you would look at each other. And we go, dude, do you think anybody's ever going to see this movie? Because I, I was never going to put it out there if Jake wasn't walking the talk. Mm-hmm. And it really took the last time that he fell. Because, you know, with people who have addictions, it's not like they quit, they go to rehab, and they're, they're never cured. Right. You know, they're always going to carry that. But, you know, they're... I would imagine that the percentage of people who go to rehab, and Jake had gone to 11 rehabs, Scott Hall, 
uh, a.k.a. Razor Ramon, who also is involved in this, he'd been to 12 rehabs. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the rehabs are going to completely get you to where you need to be. And for Jake and Scott, you know, uh, it really took the last time, you know, because that's where they start the journey of, okay, I'm one day in, you know, I'm 10 days in, I'm 10 months in, whatever it is. Um, for Jake, it really took me saying to him, here's what I have found. You are successful a lot when you're by yourself and you're not taking any antabuse. You know, antabuse is the, is the pill that makes a person who has problem with alcohol, you know, if they smell it, they'll get violently ill. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, it's a good drug. And when you've partied for damn near 45 years, and really crazy party for the last 25 or 30, um, you've got to stop it at the initial spot. And Jake really, you know, he saw his life change as we were together and, you know, back to making more money again, feeling better, you know, and, and getting to like himself a little bit. But it took all the way to the end to where I was like, bro, I love you. Uh, I'm not going to quit on you. If you quit on yourself, that's on you. But, for us to continue this journey, for starters, I've taken the, the, the film and I put it on the shelf because I have a production company and it, you know uh, a pretty big company as far as you know what DDP Yoga is all about. And we're constantly creating inspiring videos to inspire people. Like when we were on Shark Tank, like the sharks were like, you guys are successful in, a, in an area of fitness that nobody is except for Beachbody that controls the world of fitness mm -hmm. and Gaia, which controls the world of yoga. They were like, how are you guys so, in how are you so successful? And Steve said, the director said, you know, cause he's one of my partners to be here. He goes, we inspire people. And they went, well, that's great. That's great. But how do you make all the money? I go, we inspire people. <laughs> you know, it's a karma thing. You know, we help people, we know when it happens, it happens. And for Jake, when it came down to, you know, where I was just like, because when, you, when you're dealing with addiction, at some point, if you're not an addict, you go like uncle. <laughs> you're like, mm -hmm. I can't take anymore. But I said, here's the plan, bro. You got to take that pill and you got to be nice to people. I know those are tough things. You know, you got to take a video of yourself, take a video of yourself taking that pill and be nice to people. Mm. And within, you know, 90 days later, I said, okay, let's start working on the film again. You know, and, and, uh, and Jake is well over, got close to two years now. And what was really interesting is Jake was one of the smartest people I ever met. And the last 10, 15 years, not so much. But when I first met him, like crazy smart, like really, really smart. Now the fog is clearing and it's like having, a, wow, I don't even know this kid mm -hmm. because he's just, and his whole life at 60 is getting unbelievably better. And he's had all these, all these opportunities mm -hmm. and he actually, for the first time ever, loves himself and getting to have five of his eight kids. He has amazing relationships. with He got a relationship with all his grandkids 
and he's hoping at some point that the other three will come around, but he can't, you know, he's got to, you know, he, all he can do is, you know, do the right thing and keep moving forward and hopefully it'll all come together for him all the way around. Well, you know, and something that really stood out for me and touched me deeply in the documentary was when you and Jake together essentially staged that intervention with Scott. Mm. And that spoke so loudly and so genuinely. And that's what really, that put the, everything over the top for me. That this is, all, this is all about friendship and heart and really caring and compassion. Um, one of the biggest names ever in our business is Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I showed Steve one of the, you know, we'd probably done 10 edits before I let anybody see it. And my first edit was like, no, stop. Like, I don't know how to do or tell the story the way Steve Yu does. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, I don't know how to edit, you know, that's worth anything. But I know how to put salt and pepper and seasoning on something to make it taste from, oh, that's not bad. To, oh, my God, what is this? You know, it, and, this, and the same thing with food. I, I have, whether it's inspiring videos or the movies or whatever, but I, um, I first, I first cut, I was like, no, burn that. This sucks. Start over. Here's what I'm trying to say here. And, uh, it was amazing to me, the second cut, it was unbelievable. It was a completely different movie. And then it started to take shape. And then by the time we got to the eighth or tenth cut, I let Steve watch it. And he goes, yeah, I like it. And Steve is the hardest one to get anybody to put over. Like, he don't put anything over unless it's unbelievable. And um, he said, I hated the ending, though. <laughs> and I said, why did you hate the ending? And he said, because you know, I felt like it left me, like, it didn't, I didn't, I went on this whole journey with me, and it sort of like took you know, the, the rug out from underneath the table. I said, okay. And then I went back and I told everybody, you know, what my feedback was for everybody. When Steve Austin saw this film before he came out to my DDP Yoga Performance Center, because he was coming out here to uh, Smyrna, Georgia, to uh, film a couple of his uh, podcasts. He did one with me and one with Jake and one with Scott, and we videoed him. It's something he's doing, uh, he calls uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin bootleg. And uh, doesn't know what he's going to do with him yet, but we, we're going to put together something really sweet with a green screen behind us. And it's going to be really, really cool. Well, when he saw this version of the movie, he was blown away. The reaction that we have about him talking about the movie, which he saw it like a week before, mm -hmm. was like, we've had a lot of people put our movie over. But Steve, and again, this guy doesn't put anything over. When Stone Cold Steve Austin says he said he shed more than a tear or two, you know, and that he was emotionally touched the way he was. Mm -hmm. Like that to me, there's no critic. There is no critic that can tell me any different. <laughs> you know? No, Steve, I mean, and that's absolutely correct. And I'm thrilled because I also realized that you're, the film is also going to Philadelphia uh, the first weekend in October. You, the Pope is your opening act 
he leaves and you guys come in. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. I, I was um, I really loved learning seeing that when I realized, oh my God, the Pope is leaving and in comes Jake the Snake with Jake and Dallas and Steve. <laughs> Actually we're bringing Scott Hall. Razor's gonna be with us too. We're gonna be there in Philly. And I actually have a keynote speech in Charlotte, so I won't be doing any of the PR that day because I have an hour keynote speech that I just wrote called Owning It. And I think this is the best thing I've ever done. And, it, uh, you know, it, it, I, I get excited. I got excited writing it and, um, you know, starting to live it so that I can give that, that talk. Uh, I leave there and I fly into Philly that night to do uh, to do the Q and A and uh, the meet and greet, and then we go to Yonkers for the next night, and we're there for a week. The film's there for a week. We're there for the first night, and then we actually go into AMC in Manhattan, in Midtown Manhattan. Wow! They AMC, AMC gave us a week in Manhattan. Like that's unheard of for a documentary. That's amazing, but I got to tell you, this if there, anybody's going to give up a week for a doc. This is the doc they need to give up the space for. Very cool. Dallas, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Now, are you going to be in Culver City on the 15th? Absolutely. Um, as a matter, I think it's the 14th, isn't it? For, I, uh, I don't know. I think Kim was telling me either the 14th or 15th. Whatever, whatever night it is, you're down the street from my house. I will be there, whether you have me moderate your Q&A or not. <laughs> I, I will keep in mind without question and you know um the um what was i going to say about culver city oh god oh yeah anyone who wants to know anything because i'm sure your your show goes out all over and on podcasts and all of that you know at some point um anyone who wants to know anything about the resurrection of jake the snake just write down jake the snake movie jake the snake movie dot com and if you can't make it to a screening in any of our cities that we're at um you know still sign up there sign up on that site because we're going to have a date for our vod video on demand Fantastic. and we're going to have uh dvds out there and then we'll still tell people somewhere down the line when it makes showtime or whatever fantastic Dallas, thank you so, so much. And all of this, actually, all of this information will be on, because we also videoed the show today. So all of this will be on the little Chiron and on the end credits of the video show also. So people will be able to see it all as well. And one last thing. One last thing. Anybody who wants to know anything about DDP Yoga, go to ddpyoga.com. All the info is there. And if you're in Atlanta, and you want to just, you know, 20 minutes outside of the heart of Atlanta is a uh, town called Smyrna, Georgia, the DDP Yoga uh, Performance Center. Go to ddpyogapc.com and sign up for a class and come in and let me show you what the Fountain of Youth is all about. Well, I may have to come to Georgia just for that. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Dallas. I hope you'll come back again and join us again. Absolutely. I will definitely, if, if we don't, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk in Culver City, but let's get together right before the DOD goes out as well, okay? Definitely. Thank you, Dallas. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
And that was Diamond Dallas Page. And right now, I have to thank my next guest, Alan Lubke, for being so patient while Diamond Dallas Page was telling us all about DDP Yoga and Jake the Snake. Hello. Hey, Alan. good morning. Hey. That is the best way to wait on the phone is to listen to DDP talking about anything. <laughs> Well, you know, as I said at the top of the at the top of the show, I mean, this is this is a day of champions. We had Kelly McClung. Kelly, you know, he's a champion, a world champion in stick fighting. We've got DDP, who's a world champion in so many things, and now we have you, M- college Emmy winner, making a documentary yeah. about the women's MMA champion, Glenna Avia. Yeah. I mean, this is, I have, you know, I didn't know what to expect when I watched Glenna. I had no clue. I was unfamiliar with her and, you know, the women's MMA. And I have to tell, I am so impressed. And not for the world of the MMA, but for your balance that you brought and how she, as a, as a single mother, as, you know, a homemaker trying to survive and, you know, work and support her kids and put food on the table and pursue a career, the balance that you show us of how, as a person, she juggles all of this, you could have so easily just gone to and make this all about MMA, and you didn't. This is about Glenna Avia. Hey, well, I'm really glad to to hear that you had that reaction to it, because when we were making the movie, that was always the the rule that we had is don't make a movie for mixed martial arts fans, make it for everyone else. Because mixed martial arts fans are such a passionate crowd, they're going to watch the movie no matter what. Yep. So we needed to figure out how to share Glenna's story with people that might be turned off from cage fighting or might not even watch documentaries. And, you know, the sad reality is that there's, a not, there's not a lot of movies made with female protagonists, and because mm-hmm. of that, audiences don't naturally gravitate towards those films. So we had a lot of things working against us. And my interest, you know, I wasn't an MMA fan when I started making this movie. I had watched it in the 90s, you know, Ken Shamrock, Dan Severn. I remember Bar- uh, Barbara Walters doing a special with Dan Severn's wife when he was mm-hmm. fighting one night. And I had I rented some VHSs from Blockbuster, but I didn't really know anything about it. I just liked Glenna. I thought she was interesting. I thought that at her place in life, being you know going on forty, having two kids, single mom, holding down a full time job, trying to keep her house out of foreclosure, she decided to take up this dream of hers, cage fighting. And I was like, that is such a remarkable thing for someone to do. I would love to see what that actually looks like and to watch someone go through it. Uh, and it just happened that I met her at that time, and she was amazingly gracious enough to let me follow her with a camera for a year, be in her living room, be in her doctor's office, be at all of her fights. Uh, I, I was always gravitated towards the the story of it being a portrait of the modern American family rather than the story of mixed martial arts. I mean, the movie doesn't even explain mixed martial no. arts. It doesn't explain how you win. It explains nothing about the sport. We just treated it like baseball. Yeah, I mean, it's you go and you watch it, and and that's it. But it's all about Glenna, and you know, I'm 57, and to see, and it, at various points in, throughout the years, I can look back on my life, and yeah, I had to make tough decisions at 40 or tough decisions at 30, you know, mm. and to 
I think every woman in America who sees this film can relate to this film and relate to Glenna because of that, you know, the, the choice that you have to make choices. And do you make them? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, absolutely. You know, I, I just turned 33 a bit ago, and it, it's funny how I never really regarded age as anything significant to me. And it's weird now that, you know, I hit 32, 33, I'm really starting to think more about my decisions and about how every year I get older, it, it's less time to do something else or to mm-hmm. change or to switch. And it makes me think a lot harder about, you know, am I on the path that I want to be on? And that's why I just loved what Glenna was doing. She was like, I've gotten to this point, I'm, thir- you know, 35, 40, and I've got the American dream, and I'm supposed to be happy. And I'm not totally happy. And she had the guts to face herself and say, I know it's not, it's not popular societally to say that as a single mom, I've got my house and my kids, that I'm not 100% content. But she knew that she, there was something missing, and that thing missing was her own independent desire that had nothing to do with her family, that had mm-hmm. nothing to do with her job. She just wanted, you know, she needed to back herself into a corner and see what she was made of. And she chose cage fighting as her vehicle for that. And there's probably no better and more literal way to back yourself into a corner and see what you're made of by locking yourself in a cage (laughs) with someone else whose job is to hurt you to the point where you can't continue. Mm -hmm. Well, and that you also created this great this great metaphor because of the cage fighting. She essentially was in an emotional cage trying to figure out where to go. In her life, yeah, it's it is a it, it's amazing how much Glenna's personal story dovetailed with the the world of cage fighting, and none of it was intentional when we started filming it. When I, I filmed that movie for a year and edited it for about three, <laughs> and frankly, when you said that right now, that's the first time I've ever really thought about that. But you're so right; uh, the story is so much deeper than I realized when I was first making it that. You know, when it started, it was just a novelty piece. It was this lady who was cage fighting, and I, th- I thought that was a good way to make a little short film and kind of fill some time outside of my job that I was kind of bored with. And as I started meeting her kids and her boyfriend and her coach and talked with her more, I just realized there was so much going on in this woman's life that I could relate to about, you know, at the time I was trying to learn how to relate to my mom as an adult, and I was really struggling with that. And I thought her son at age 16 he was trying to now interact with his mom as, as a young man and see his mom as an independent individual woman and not just his parent. And, you know, I really related to that theme. I don't fight, so I don't relate to fighting, but I certainly relate to having to get to know your mom as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were the themes that I really liked following because they made sense to me. Well, you know, unfortunately, Alan, I'm already getting the, we're already out of time today. I am my I am heartbroken here because I <laughs> not want, a, not a problem. I, I got I had a lot of fun listening to DDP and I talking want, with you. Will you come back on the show in in the next week or two so we can talk more about this documentary? Would love to because I want to I want to get into your processes on how you on you know what you did with it. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to know who's going to be on before me that I'm going to be listening to while waiting. I'll, I'll let Annie know. <laughs> great. A- Alan, thank you so much. Not a problem. You guys have a great day. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have today. Join us again next week.
Who knows what's going to happen? 